0: Welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil, PhD student. Welcome back to New Books in African-American Studies. I am your host, Adam McNeil, PhD student in the Department of History at the University of Delaware. Today, I have the distinguished opportunity to have Dr. Vanessa Valdez, the pheno- on the program today for her phenomenal book published by SUNY Press in 2017 entitled Diasporic Blackness The Life and Times of Arturo Alfonso Schomburg how are you doing today doctor <laughs>
1: I'm doing wonderfully. How are you doing?
0: (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my gosh. As I see the squiggly lines here, I think we're doing just fine right now.
1: As we have have been practicing this for some time, but we're going to keep doing this.
0: (laughs) Oh, man. We're going to keep doing it. And the reason why, listeners, uh, uh, Doctor the the, the phenomenal doctor and I are laughing so much is because this interview has definitely been in the works for... um, From one end of the end of a semester to the beginning of another. And so this has been going on since, you know, the end of uh, of spring semester 2018. And uh, this is being recorded August 1st of 2018. So uh, one thing that you will learn with the New Books and African American Studies staff and the overall New Books Network, (laughs) we are all about that word perseverance. And and this interview... (laughs) is definitely a case study for that. But it is for good use because as I have on this hoodie that says books save my life, the person that brought that into being in all seriousness is Arturo Alfonso Schomburg, <laughs> the great Afro-Puerto Rican yes. man in the freaking <laughs> flesh. And he is the reason why we are here today for the 12,000th time, speaking about this tremendous book. And it's because the book is so tremendous, but the author is even more stupendous why we must continue (laughs) and persevere. Yes.
1: So welcome to the show. I'm really, really excited to be here as I was, (laughs) you know, all of the times that we have spent together. Oh,
0: man. Oh, man. Yes, yes, and so um, before we get knee deep into this book, um, please tell us why this book, why Arturo Alfonso Schomburg, and, and what does what is so harrowing about his story that you're like, yeah, I gotta I gotta write a book about this dude, like I got to. Like, what about this guy made you do
1: So this book has roots back to when I was in college. So we're talking 20 years back now when in my penultimate semester in school, I took two classes that changed my life. I was an English major to that point and took, you know, English major stuff, right? Sure, Chaucer, Milton, and then Toni Morrison and Ralph Ellison and James Baldwin. It's what I'm reading. It's what I'm doing. And... Lo and behold, I see this class in the catalog and it's U.S. Latino literature. And I had never known what that, I didn't know what that was. So I was like, all right, well, let's see. And that changed, that class changed my life because it was the first time I saw books written by people like myself and my family. So i.e. questions of identity, questions of uh, through language, through religion, by folks who for example were writing in English but their parents spoke Spanish or their grandparents spoke Spanish and they had come from other countries or you know in the case of Chicanos you know the United States was their country (laughs) and then the U.S. took it over. Um, So I took that class and then I also the same semester took Afro-Hispanic literature and that was a class that for the first time I saw explicit mentionings of, or treatments of blackness in Latin America. And so I am a daughter of two black Puerto Ricans. Um, My family has been in Puerto Rico, at least on my mother's side for 130 years. This is what I know. And so the combination of those two things came in a pivotal time in my life where prior to that, like most um, Latin Americans who live in the U.S. or Caribbean peoples who live in the U.S., you know, there's an, there's, Uh, identification with your national self, right? So you hear like a Puerto Rican, I'm Cuban, I'm whatever, but there's often no explicit, like I'm black, Puerto Rican or white or whatever. And so it came at a time for me where I was looking at my family and looking at myself and going, Hey, why don't we ever talk about this really? Um, And then that same semester, right? I have the professor mentions that there is a center in Harlem called the Schomburg center and it was named after a Puerto Rican man. And so as a bookworm who was born and raised in New York City, I was shocked that there was anything, there was any monuments, let alone a library, named for a Puerto Rican. And so that was kind of fascinating for me. And that stayed in my consciousness, right? It just kind of like hovered. Um, So that same professor that taught the US Latino Lit class I went to him and I said, I'd love to learn more about this. He invited me to go to graduate school. And I say invited because that's how he presented it. I didn't realize that I was being recruited necessarily. And I wound up in uh, at Vanderbilt University and I got a master's in Spanish, master's in Portuguese and a combined doctorate. So I was trained as a, a comparatist. And so with my English undergraduate degree, I was able to see motifs and tropes and resonances across the hemisphere, um, particularly in literatures written by Black folks. And so that has become my focus, right? My my, my specialty is um, the literatures of the African diaspora, right, across national boundaries. And so as that has come into f- fruition, um, as we now see a more popular use of Afro-Latinidad, right, that is now more in the public consciousness than it has been. You know, Schomburg was, he's the the, the person that brings together all of these things. Um, he's the person that a lot of people didn't know much about. Um, poor, there are some Puerto Ricans who knew that he was Puerto Rican, but a lot of people didn't know that. He's often affiliated with the Harlem Renaissance. Um, but once you look into his life, you realize that he's already 50 years old by the time of the Harlem Renaissance. So. It's like, what was he doing prior to that? Um, And so, yeah, it was a great opportunity for me to just fill in these gaps of who is this man? Why is he so important? And why, what is it about him that he, his identity gets fragmented in that way? That kind of, you know, there's a pick and choose quality when it comes to him. And at the same time, we don't know much about him, but what we do know is this little, little bit. And so that all of that was the inspiration for this book.
0: And with that particular inspiration, what um, what particular areas um, Because when you talk about the Harlem Renaissance, it really didn't occur to me until and so even now um, how 50 years of life was already lived pretty much right as the Harlem Renaissance is going on. And almost when you think about like the Renaissance nature of the period, you think about like, like youth culture almost, right. You think about, you know, relatively young folks um, who would live, you know, 30, 40, 50 years after the, the, the Renaissance was over. But, you know, someone like Sean Burke was like already like, you know, he was, you know, he was older. Um, and so could you talk to us a bit about, um, you know, what led up to that particular period. Tell us can you tell us a bit about, you know, the early life of, of Schaumburg and kind of what was going on in, in Puerto Rico, um, where where he was where he was born, and a little bit about his family upbringing as well, that kind of give us a better understanding of, of the man.
1: For me, again, what was critical was first going to the Schomburg Center and you are you once upon when you right. walk into that space, you see a picture of him. And what you're confronted with is a picture of a Black man. And so that was really telling for me because people, again, the we have to, what I wasn't, was called to do with this was really take a serious examination of how Blackness is treated within the Puerto Rican community, right? So this was... This book also is a love letter to my community, to the community into which I was born as a New Yorker, um, into the larger Puerto Rican community, but then even larger Black community, right? And the multiple Black communities that exist here in New York. So, Abdullah Schomburg is born in 1874. He is born to a Danish West Indian free Black woman um, and a German Puerto Rican man, meaning his father's family was... was in Puerto Rico since the 1820s. He's born in 1874. So that's a Puerto Rican family. It's just that at times we don't think of German presence in the Hispanic Caribbean, right? So already there, there's a kind of um, pushback against what are simplistic notions of ethnic identities in the Caribbean. Um, his, His father recognizes him, which is really important because, you know, there is a sense of, um illegitimacy. I think there's this idea of like, oh, well, he has this white name, don't really really and it's part like everything about Abdullah Schomburg is hard to place. It defies stereotype, right? So you have a Spanish name, Spanish first two names, and then a uh, German last name. Um, but his grandmother, his his paternal grandmother is on his baptism certificate, meaning his father's family did, in fact recognize him. Um, so he is, you know, a legitimate son um and he is raised primarily with his mother's family so he is raised in saint thomas and saint croix in addition to puerto rico um he is born into a free black community in puerto rico which today is called san dulce when he was born it was called san mateo de cangrejos which is one of it was a maroon settlement historically and so even that that's a history that we don't necessarily talk about explicitly in Puerto Rico. So all of that is incredibly important. Um, He lives his first 17 years in the Caribbean. um, And then he comes to New York. And in that time, he almost immediately gets involved with the fight for independence of Cuba and Puerto Rico. And so when I started doing my research on him, again, Schomburg is aligned primarily with the Renaissance. And there's this idea with him that, uh, with some folks that well, he left his Puerto Ricanness, right? Because there was in this in the writings about him. And there's there's not too many writings about him. I mean, Schomburg in general elicits a footnote sometimes, you know, or a mention in a chapter. In my research, there were literally maybe like I can count the there was one biography published in 1989. Uh, by by Eleanor Deverney Sinnott, which is the, the was the standing biography, and then there was you know a, a an essay here, a chapter there, that was it really. Those are the fullest treatments of him. Um, but they kind of like, with one exception, well two of them. In general, there was no sense of like his Puerto Ricanness, um, and so it was really important for me that in in the first chapter that I ground his identity in Puerto Rico. Um, And in the fact that when he gets here, this is an Afro New York city has a larger, larger than Puerto Rican, but a larger Afro Cuban exile community and Afro Puerto Rican exile community. So we're talking tobacco workers and artisans, um, folks who on the islands in the islands had been uh, thrown out by the Spanish colonial government because both islands were colonies of Spain at the time, and they were fighting for independence. And so... If you are in New York, anybody who is in New York in the first or second week of June, for example, knows that uh, there's always a Puerto Rican debate. And if you go to that parade, you will almost always hear calls for independence uh, for Puerto Rico, always, for as long as I can remember. What I did not realize up until the, the writing of this book was that the New York community, i.e. the New York Puerto Rican community, was founded by these men and women who were writing their materials, who were forming schools, who were founding newspapers and writing documents and writing pamphlets and raising money and gathering weapons to to have armed insurrection (laughs) in Cuba and Puerto Rico. Um, And he was right in the middle of that. He was the secretary of uh, one of the revolutionary clubs, um, Las Dos Antillas. Uh, He also served in club, uh, Club Bodinquen, Bodinquen being the indigenous name of puerto rico um he worked alongside jose Marti. most uh, folks who know anything about cuba know that jose malty is recognized as the father of the cuban nation um he was also the father of the he was he headed and founded the cuban revolutionary party and so Schomburg is in that he is in everything that is happening with regards to uh Spanish, uh, Puerto Rican and Cuban independence from Spain at that time and was fighting for it until 1898 which is when the USS Maine um, it's three years into the, the third Cuban war for independence and the USS Maine blows up and and the United States uses that as an excuse and enters into what had then been the Cuban war for liberation and takes over those islands and with that all the revolutionary activity in this city dispersed. Once the U.S. came in, it was a wrap.
0: As the United States uh, typically does, <laughs> for unfortunate reasons, right? Um, and and with that particular uh, grounding contextually, um, I think that really gives us a, g- a great understanding of you know the 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 connects really that. Um, that that Schomburg had um, in the sense of he's well before, you know, the, in the Harlem Renaissance period that we spoke about before. He's well connected to radicals. He's well connected to uh, intellectuals, to to multiple communities. Um, and so I think that 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 really gives us a great grounding. And um, as well, as we go into as we cycle through the, the early 20th century, and we're crossing the 19th to the 20th century. Um, I thought that one of the more interesting parts of your book was when you talk about, you know, his, you know, how he, how did he, you know, start collecting, right? Because the term bibliophile, honestly, probably three or four years ago didn't really really mean anything to me. Uh, but now the concept of being a bibliophile uh, is, is, is if I'm, if I'm correct in how it's, how I'm using it, um, is a way that definitely describes, uh, 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 Arturo Schomburg and, and, and really his, 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 what he's personified to be today in 2018. So would you be able to give us a a brief breakdown of kind of like, how did he begin his journey and, and any, um, challenges he had, um, to his particular uh, nature and his identity as well?
1: yeah so the collecting actually is really fascinating because prior to prior to the carnegie corporation buying his collection his private collection with the intent of donating it to the new york public library arturo schomberg was mostly known as being a freemason right he was a really prominent mason within the black communities in the city and so he collected Even in that role, right? He, within his lodge, he was collecting, he helped to found the library in his lodge and was in charge of ordering the papers and making sure everything was okay. Now, his lodge, the lodge into which he was initiated, um, happens when he's, his initiation happens when he's 20 years old. So again, he's still in an Afro Cuban, Afro Puerto Rican milieu, right? The lodge was an Afro Cuban one out in Brooklyn. What happens uh, after the war, again, is that Oftentimes when we talk about passing in this country, we talk about um, African-Americans passing into white communities, right? We don't necessarily talk about um, folks of African descent from other places passing into an African-American community. And that's what happens with a lot of the Afro Cubans uh, with that that he had been surrounded by was that folks and he himself, for some people, he passed into black communities, i.e. English speaking communities. And that, again, was something that I challenge in this book because he never forgets his Puerto rican He names his children um, Spanish names. Like his kids have names like Carlos and Dolores and Maximo. You know, so obviously he's not forgetting his background. Um, but also in his lodge, he translates as the, the Afro-Cuban population Disperses. There is uh, he's active in the rec- recruitment of folks from the Anglophone the Anglifa Caribbean, so folks coming from the British West Indies, and he translates the documents of the lodge from Spanish to English. So you have that on top of the fact that he had been involved again with the Afro Cuban and Afro Puerto Ricans who were establishing schools and for themselves because for them the idea being that in order to be. Able- Once you lead a revolution, once you're a part of the revolution, part of that, the goal of which is to create a new a new nation, right? A nation state. And you have to be prepared to be an active citizen of that nation state. And so many of these folks, right, they didn't have formal education. Right. With Schomburg, what we know is that he went to high school. So we're not talking about college graduate. Right. Many of these folks were. So they were self-taught and then Mm -hmm. they turn around and they teach each other. So he was involved in those communities as well. So you have collecting within his revolutionary sphere, collecting within his Masonic sphere. And then also one of the, a lot of the Masons that mentored him were very much about um, Pan-Africanism, Black internationalism, right? So his, one of his father's figures is uh, John Edward Bruce. And so he was an, a man who had been a former slave was freed and started newspapers. And he was all about writing history, right? So there's a whole group of folks. Again, when we think about Schomburg, oftentimes he's placed in this kind of exceptional realm, right? Like he was only the only one who did any of this. He wasn't, right? There were groups of free Black folks in this country prior to emancipation, and then certainly after emancipation, who attained formal education or not And they were teaching each other and collecting books. And the idea was, we have to show that we are part of this country. So you collect everything, all documents that that testify to Black excellence and testify to our Black humanity. Because in in the face of the white supremacy that is ruling the United States, right, this is what we have to do. We constantly have to show that we're human, right? So... He's, that's what he's doing at the time. He's involved in all those fears of librarians and archivists and bibliophiles and certainly on the Northeast Corridor, right? What we, Those of us who are Amtrak uh, fluent, right? So he's, you know, D.C. and Philly and Boston and New York, right? But, you know, you're well aware of, like, what the, the Massachusetts Historical Society and, like, what's happening, you know, and Philadelphia, right? And Philadelphia, the prominence of the free Black community in Philadelphia, right? That's that's what he's doing is he's in all of these realms with folks who are all concerned about preserving our history and testifying to not only our humanity, not only our intellect, but, you know, excellence on all levels.
0: And, and that is exactly, you know, the, the description that for me personifies really his importance uh, for me um, in the sense that, for me, like I remember, like the first time I went to, you know, the Shaanburgen, and, and and I didn't realize at the time how sacred the ground was. I didn't know that, you know, uh, if I'm not mistaken, there's there's a video that's always shown whenever they have like a public program that says uh, I forget which figure oh, was it, Langston Hughes, or or some somebody was uh, was there there they were interred or so, so their ashes were. Lay there. Um, uh, which, which figure was
1: that? Yeah. In that, in that lobby. Mm-hmm.
0: Right. And, and so to, to, to learn that, and I didn't get to explore it at the time, but I knew that it was important for, for, for reasons that I hope to learn. And, and, and as someone who is the child of a mother who who siblings grew up in New York were born and raised in, in the city. It's so intriguing to me to learn. Like she didn't really learn about him until she got much much older. And obviously she didn't grow up. She grew up in Brooklyn, but she didn't grow up in like Harlem. But still, like that's a, that's an iconic institution in the entire city of New York, um, uh, specifically for for those of the uh, of the African diaspora. Um, so it's so great to learn as I continue to get older. Um, that there are folks like yourselves who are still, you know, finding so in uh, so uh, really awesome ways to really talk about his life, um, and not only his life, you talk about it, you know, as almost like a love letter to your community, you know, and that and that love is being spread around so many different communities too, because the story of Schaumburg, uh of of, of, of Arturo Schomberg is some something that I think you 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 can't not find something about the history of of the African diaspora and not find something I think useful in the present day space of the Schomburg Center.
1: Right, absolutely. No, and I think for me personally, you know, What's interesting, and I think one of the reasons that, you know, in my introduction, I talk about the performance of ethnic identities, right? How seemingly it seems like he failed at performing his Puerto rican quote unquote, to the satisfaction of later day critics, who then talk about, well, he wrote, and even contempt- and during his time, right? In his lifetime, he was criticized. Um, I, I reference a letter there where he's communicating with an Afro-Cuban editor in Havana, and he writes to him in English. And in Spanish, the editor, Uhutilla, Gutavo writes, well, you know, oh, well, we've lost him. You know, this, our proud Afro-Bodinqueno brother. And this idea of, again, it's the same things that if you are, if you speak to Black Latinos today, Afro-Latinos and Latinas and Latinxs today, right? That idea of, well, the Black community doesn't think I'm, um, I'm Black enough and the Hispanic community doesn't think I'm Hispanic enough. That's what he was living, right? So even when I when I use the word community, please understand that I, I use that most expansive sense of the word, much like he does, right? So the idea of like, it's not just for the weakness, right? It's not just that island. It's, no, he was actively trying to expand definition, at least this is my argument, that he's trying to expand definitions of blackness and challenging one, understandings that they're just English-based. Because even at this, you know, even in his lifetime, you know, Again, African or Negro ness, right? To use the parlance of the time, was understood to be United States, right? And we're in the United States, that makes sense. If you were from other places, you, you know, you was a foreign Negro, and so that was understood to be, you know. And I referenced the the multiple black communities happening in his lifetime, right? There was. British West Indian community here, right? So he's friends with Claude McKay and Eric Walrens, right? He's friends with Marcus Garvey. Marcus Garvey is a Mason. So, you know, he's in the midst of all this, um, but also he's introducing for many people, he's serving as an introduction to, oh wow, they're black Latin Americans because that's not something that they knew, right? Because oftentimes a lot of folks, when you have enclaves, you stick with what you know. And so if there were communities that only spoke Spanish and didn't necessarily speak English, Right? That's where they stayed. And he spoke English. And so he spoke both. And I, you know, there's some of us that I've read other places where he also he communicated in French. And I read his papers to a friend of his, Dante Belgarde, who was the Haitian diplomat to the United States. Um, you know, he's writing in French. So he's writing multiple multiple languages, multiple registers, dealing with multiple communities at the time. Um friends with, you know, he's he's friends with Du Bois. He's friends with Elaine Locke. He's friends with, you know, Claude, um, Claude, uh, Charles Johnson, right? Du Bois being, of course, editor of the crisis, Charles Johnson at one time being the editor of Opportunity Magazine, or Opportunity. He's being published, you know, they're publishing his work, and he's talking about Cuba. And he's talking, you know, he's saying, he's talking, he's calling attention to Black populations in Spanish-speaking lands. And so that was, when I started this book, my emphasis as a person who is trained in literature, I started with his writings mm-hmm. and I said, okay, where's he being published? And that was at the time, you know, that's what he's writing about. He's calling attention to blackness um, and, and again, black internationalism, not of focus on English speaking areas, you know, that were not free yet. A lot of focus on Haiti, right? The U S had, had taken over Haiti in 1915, took over the Dominican Republic in 1916. And so, and was there for, was on that island um, for 20 years or not, almost 20 years, right? In Haiti, they were there till 1934. Um, and in, in the Dominican Republic, they were there for eight years. So those, those are causes that we may at this moment have, we may not be studying as much as we should be, but that's, that's, that's the environment. That's what's happening in his time. Is he is, he, his, he himself is translating everywhere he goes. You know, Elaine Locke, after his death, says, comments on the fact that Shamba you know, introduced him to, right, black communities in Latin America. And so that was, a, you know, for everything that we, for all the credit that we give to boys and Locke, you know, as PhDs at the time, you know, think about this man who has a, has a high school education, who's teaching them about the millions of people that live, of African descent, that live below the Rio Grande.
0: Also, a part of your book that I found very intriguing, considering um, you know, where I came from as an HBCU, Florida and M University, shouts out to them. Um, you know, HBCU land. Oh yeah. Um, and also how you tell a story about Fisk University during the Jim Crow South, that I thought would be a very valuable uh, uh, uh part to, to add to To the listening audience, uh, would you be able to talk to us a bit about um, uh, Arturo Schomburg's uh, experience dealing with Fisk University and, and them, you know, really finding him?
1: Yeah, so as I m- just mentioned, Charles Johnson was one of his, was, was a very close friend of his. Um, again, in the capacity of publishing him in Opportunity. And then Charles Johnson, you know, as, as a lot of folks know, prominent sociologist, uh, and gets recruited to head up the social science division it, at Fisk University. And so one of the things that he does is he brings Schomburg to the attention of Fisk's president, new president at the time. Um, so Shortly thereafter, in the late 1920s, Schomb- and this is after his, the sale of his collection, uh, they, he's asked to the president of Fisk at the time, whose name escapes me at the moment, Th- Thomas Elsa something. I apologize to him. Um, but he asks, he asks uh, Schomburg to, he, he asks him to mm-hmm. act on behalf of Fisk University because Fisk University is going to establish itself as a premier... It wants to establish itself more firmly as the premier um, university, black university at the time, and so they had gotten money to create a new library building. There were really like there was an infusion of money from organizations, you know, in in the north to to the investment. There was a concerted investment in black education in the U.S. South, and Schomburg was a part of that. So. Uh, negotiations began in 1928, I believe, where he's being asked to go see collections, and he would buy them on behalf of Fisk. Um, 1928, 1929. He then uh, is persuaded to actually go live in Nashville, Tennessee, and to really oversee the the establishment of the collection once the building is did. And so he lives in Nashville for a few for two years, um, which again, as a Vanderbilt graduate, who is literally across the train tracks from Fisk University, I mean, I was unwittingly, like, it. once I started writing this book, I, I saw the parallels, and I was like, okay, I get it, <laughs> like, and that was one of them, because I knew exactly, mm-hmm. I knew what Fisk was, and I knew what it meant, not only to the surrounding community, of course, but, you know, Fisk is, Fisk is tremendous in the HBCU universe, so, you know, I know FAMU you know, I know y'all, mm-hmm. but, you know, I have to kind of rep Fisk in this moment, <laughs> and so, uh, yeah, so... Prior to his arrival there, their library had – it was in the low hundreds. And then when he has finished uh, accumulating the books, they have almost 2,000 volumes. Right and, again, it ta- his collection, the collection that he assembles at Fisk University, takes on the reputation of dealing with, 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 with Black folks outside of the United States. And so even there, right – there were people who were assessing that collection, saw what was coming in and saw it was multilingual, it was multinational, and it was dealing with the diaspora. It was dealing with you know, everyone of African descent. Um, at one point, was they were in talks to create a, uh, they wanted Fisk to have a library school. And so that was why they were going, okay, well, what materials do we have here. And also he was one that he presided over their reading room and so the idea of having a room, we oftentimes don't think that we think about the spatial dimensions of physical dimensions of what a library looks like, right? And where a reading room is in relation to the stacks, for example. And so he was also instrumental in Aaron Douglas painted murals at Fisk in his in the reading room at Fisk University. And so you can still access that building. It's now the administration building because they wound up buying a new or constructing a new building in the 60s. Um, but you can still see those murals. You still see the the cards that, the, that we no longer use anymore. And that's where that's where Adolfo was, you know, and he was intense on making sure, again, being a part of training students who, you know, at the time when we we're talking about the Du Bois-Washington debate on the nature of education for young black men and women, right, and an emphasis on physical labor versus intellectual pursuits. You know, he wanted, he was overseeing uh, curricula and uh, an accessibility of texts that made sure that these young people knew about African Americans as well as peoples of African sense throughout the hemisphere.
0: Also, that, you know, I, I, I loved um, that connection that you made between, you know, your, your, your time at Vanderbilt. Um, and, and it's funny, um, yesterday I was actually in Asheville, North Carolina at a coffee shop. And, um, I remembered seeing, um, on uh, Vanderbilt's website that y'all have like a, like a coffee studies department or something, I think in, in, within the Latin American studies department. And I was like, coffee studies.
1: You know what? I'm literature, man. I I don't know.
0: Yeah, Vanderbilt, (laughs) you know, Vanderbilt, (laughs) something else, man. You know, y'all, y'all, I know Peabody, the education school is good and, Y'all, y'all been out here doing the work, but good grief. Y'all out here doing coffee too. Y'all, you know, these 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 Nashville, Tennessee, man. You know, y'all out here doing yes. this stuff. You got Fisk and Tennessee State and Vanderbilt, Belmont, and you know, that's just within the overall city. So it's a lot of great history that that's gone down. Thank you, uh within within that time frame <laughs> that's produced some phenomenal <laughs> scholars. Yourself included, of course, and so um, for sure, for sure, gotta show some love, gotta show some love. Fight black women, not just on Sunday. And so, um, for real, for real, for yes. real. Take off my sorry to bother you voice. And so, <laughs> I told you I was gonna do it. Told you I was gonna do it. Go, go see that movie. Go see that movie. I, I ain't working for uh, Boots Riley, but go see that movie. Um, shout out to Tessa and uh, Lakeith Stanfield. And so um getting back to Mr. Schomberg. Um,
1: <laughs> we had like a moment of realness and then it's like, okay, now we're back. Yes. <laughs> stage, these students back. And yes. about mm-hmm. us. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> for sure, for sure. And uh, and so so with that, you know, I also thought that, you know, another part of the the life of of, of Alfonso or, uh, <laughs> ah, I can't even say this brother name right. There. God forgive me. About Sean Berg, Um, is that I, I thought that a part that was really cool was how okay. we talked about the Harlem Renaissance before, but how you told stories of how people would just be coming to this dude's house. He'd be having like parties, like he'd be having like people over. Hey man, check. You know, obviously I'm, I'm you know, in in the I'm not in the voice of. Uh, uh, of Schaumburg, but how I would think of that. This was going down. Be like, <laughs> yo, you see this over here, man. I got, you know, all. so so trying to think about like painting the story, of painting the picture of how, you know, there were so many people, um, you know, so many intellectuals, so many creatives, so many writers, so many artists who were um, coming to his home to look at all of the artifacts and all the you know important pieces of black. Of black you know the the black experience diasporically um so could you tell us a bit about that as well and particularly highlight some of the individuals um who, who would frequent his home and and who really just knew him you know talk about Du Bois and and Johnson and others but others who were just like frequent in his house I thought that was so so really cool to learn
1: yeah. So, so you had said earlier, you'd ref- made reference mm-hmm. earlier about um, when we think about the Harlem Renaissance, we think about young people, right? Like it's like it's, and that's anytime we use Renaissance as a word, right? It's the idea of like this energy, right, that's associated with youth, right? But when we're talking about this, folks, actually, Du Bois is older than Schomburg, right? Like Du Bois has like. Uh, I believe six to eight years on him, right? So we're talking, he's contemporaneous to Du Bois and to Locke, and he's also a patron to young artists. So Langston Hughes, there's a letter of, of, of Langston Hughes coming with Zornio Austin, and they're going out to see his work, uh, to see his collection. Um, James Weldon Johnson at the time did an anthology of poetry, edited an anthology of poetry at the time, again, of authors from throughout the hemisphere. And so he he was also close with Schomburg. Schomburg put a lot of people on to, again, writers from throughout the diaspora and also African-American writers. I believe that he was one of the ones, they said that he was one of the ones that had three copies of Phyllis Wheatley's first book, for example. And so he's instrumental in And and again, not only himself, but also other archivists and collectors at the time are instrumental in what we would later come to know as black studies programs, right? This idea of like, that's what we're building this knowledge on is folks who conserved these documents from, you know, the 18th century and the 19th century. Um, But yeah. Langston Hughes, Langston Hughes was friends with him. And also he was in, Schomburg's was instrumental okay. in, and again, friend, I use friends loosely because there was an age. So he was a mentor <laughs> to Langston Hughes and to Zora Neale Hurston. Um, and also younger uh, writers. So uh, Afro-Cuban writer, Nicolás Guillén, um, is uh, he, Langston Hughes, translating Guillén's work and also, you know, Schomburg knows him. Um there are also artists, he, he patronizes art at the time. So he's doing in the 135th Street branch, library, which becomes the Schomburg Center um, later, at, well after his death, um, he is putting on exhibitions. And so he's exhibiting books and documents, but he's also exhibiting art. Um, he's working with the Harmon Foundation um, who had awarded him a medal for excellence in education upon the sale of his collection. And then he's also Uh, uh, bringing other artists, visual artists to the attention of the Harmon Foundation. So again, he does a lot. What what I found interesting about Schomburg was there's a question of implicit versus explicit, right? Um, When we talk about the production of knowledge at times, particularly within the academy, uh, there's this idea of you have to write that book, you have to write that article, you have to write that book review, right? And he is writing Yes, he's writing articles that are appearing in newspapers and in, you know, the most well-read um, uh, publications at the time for the African-American community. And also, he's doing, you know, implicit knowledge production right he's putting together exhibitions and, he's curating and
0: honestly you know? that's and why so i was even thinking about, about like what's going to be my curates, like post right? that's a interview like tweet and i don't think you trained have one Not to see knows it.
1: necessarily what you know what Cats the organizing principle and so one of the choices are. one of the things i was just even thinking Schaumburg was also you know, begs who, us to look at who
0: are the people that right now are the main you know black diasporic or african african diasporic uh, uh, collectors, right? Who are the people who, you know, are are you know going to all of these different places and acquiring, you know, because because I think about a lot of my friends because I came from a master's program where, you know, it was a lot of people who were doing dual masters in history and also doing a masters in like library and information studies. So a lot of archivists and future archivists and such, and so. Uh, being around them really for about two or three years has really, I think, fundamentally changed how I think about these kinds of questions in ways that I don't necessarily don't necessarily think that if I would have went straight into a PhD or if I would have gone to a different kind of school, I I don't know if I'd have the same questions. And I bring that up because when we look at you know who acquires particular collections. Right. You talk about the Schomburg. They just got, um, you know, they just acquired these new uh, uh, un, uh, Well, I guess kind of previously unknown, kind of known um, uh, chapters of, of the of, uh, Malcolm X's uh, autobiography. Right. Which were apparently taken out or in some way, obviously not included in the final text um, after his death. And so when I think about those kinds of decisions and we're speaking even just to the Schomburg Center now, or, how they just got um um they, they got P- baldwin's papers or I think uh, some of baldwin's papers, uh, at least in the post uh, I am national Negro world um shouts out to Raul Peck um, and so looking at those kinds of questions that's why I think someone like schomberg is even even more important because we're always looking at now who's going to acquire the papers right do we want them to go and and these questions right that people have do we want you know, African Americans who went to HBCUs, for instance, for their papers to go to Yale or go to these other institutions, right? And we're shout out to those who are at Yale. We're not coming at your neck. We're just pointing out in in in, in a particular uh 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 situation um some questions um who are gonna stay unsighted and so um
1: <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to your point, look at, I mean, I was talking about the classes that I went to um, earlier. I was, I'm a Yale graduate. So, and there's a point in this, in this text when I talk about um, G- uh, Jean Hudson, who was the first director of the Schomburg Center, where she compared the Beinecke Library, right? Which is where Langston Hughes' papers are. It's a James Weldon Johnson collection, right? So you have all these prominent African-American writers who are at Yale. I mean, that was, you know, you knew what you were doing when you drop, name drop Yale. And compared it
0: <laughs> honestly right right hand of god right I did this is how you know new books in African american studies listeners and and those across to the other across us uh, uh, networks or pages we were talking before this started offline about how you know we're friends now if if our past couple of months haven't haven't shown that this moment adds <laughs> on the 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 um <laughs> the 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 cherry on the top with the whipped cream and everything because i had no clue i i ain't scope your bio like you usually do and so I didn't know you was at Yale. So when you said, "Oh yeah, uh, uh, yeah," I went to. I was like, "Oh Lord, I'm gonna get this mail from. No, no. I'm gonna get this no, mail no. from Yale. David Blight gonna come at my neck. He ain't gonna nope. come on the program with the new uh, Fred Douglas bio. Lord. But
1: let me just let me let me. No, you're okay. Jean Blackwell Hudson, <laughs> what she compared it to? She compared Beinecke Library with the Schomburg Center, and what she said was, "If you go to the Beinecke Library, and this is to." Your point about larger questions of an archive, right? She said that the Binicly Library is like a mausoleum in comparison to the Schomburg Center, right? And the and you know we just a few weeks ago, your colleague Ashley Farmer at Black Perspectives, um, she she has written uh, an article about what it is to be black in the archive, right? And so that idea of again, and the archive in in the root of that word, this is the records that were at the magistrate's house, right? It goes back to Roman times. And so the idea of the construction of an archive is a state legitimizing the collection of information and records, and then making it difficult for a larger population to access those records. And one of the revolutionary things about Schomburg and about the Schomburg Center is that his thought process behind his collection was always the democratization of knowledge it was always about, we all need to have this knowledge. And so to the extent that when they, they had the, so the shop, the Carnegie corporation buys his private collection in 1926, um, which was the one that was at his house out in Brooklyn that people would go to, right? They buy that collection. Um, he died in 1938. Um, it is formally renamed the Schomburg Collection. So that it was the Negro Division of Literature, and Prints, and History. Um, but it was unofficially known as the Schomburg Collection, but it was, becomes officially the Schomburg Collection. Um, and then in, in 1972, I believe, the Schomburg Center is deemed a part of the research library as part of the New York Public Library. And so they had to reconstruct. Um, the 135th street branch, you know, and so what stands today that what covers that block of 135th street to 136th street that, you know, they just finished reconstruction again um, and renovation again, but they had to put in place uh, storage that would actually house these, to keep these documents, you know, safe. Because when we talk about archives, we're talking about temperature control. We're talking about making sure that the documents and the prints and everything that they hold don't, aren't destroyed by nature, i.e. weather and humidity, weather, even like internally, right? So humidity levels, things like that. Yale University has the money for that. <laughs> That's my point. And the Schomburg Center, um, in that interview, I believe it was taken in the 1980s, Gene um, Blackwell Hudson says, you know, that wasn't the emphasis. The emphasis while Mr. Schomburg was alive was just to collect it and to have it and then to make sure that people could access it. And it was something that they then later on had to develop, you know, as the Schomburg Center got bigger and bigger and bigger. And so, you know, when we're talking about accessing knowledge, right? I mean, the Schomburg Center is legitimately, as most Black museums, right, in this country, they are often underfunded, right? And yet they are so critical to what we need in terms of the production of knowledge.
0: And one of, I think it was, it would have been my last uh, episode that, that debuted, actually that debuted on my birthday was uh, with Ian Roxborough Smith um, out in British Columbia, who wrote about the exact issue that you talked about um, about black public history activism in Chicago in the world war two era and through the cold war. So literally Ble- like like Schonberg's death in you, bl- you said 1938 is brushing right up against this particular period where you know the DuSable Museum is is uh being thought of in in this infancy at this point um and and you know that's a that's an important museum over there in Chicago along with the the Charles Wright up in Detroit and so and and so it's it's a phenomenal connection that 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 you just made there um, maybe not on purpose, but you did it anyway. Um, and so, um, I think that's an important part too, in the sense of, you know, spaces be, you know, what, why are spaces particularly created, right? Is it to be inviting? Is it to become a mausoleum? Can you be an inviting mausoleum? Those are important questions, um, that I think that, um, I really, I think that are are really invaluable, um, uh, they're very valuable questions that scholars I think are having openly um with folks in the um archival space, in the, you know, the people who are, you know, we talk about ambiance, right? They are literally the people who create it and us as scholars are there to, you know, um to to gain what we need and and try to have an experience. Um and so also when I think about this, I think as well of even almost the expansion of you know, new books in African American studies, right? or even having an article-based uh, approach, too, as well, and not only books, but even, you know, that Archiving wild Black article, it's not a book, but that is one of the most valuable um, – uh, that's one of the most I, – I, I will say this, right? I had Dr. Farmer on for, for an interview for a book, and I will say that you couple those two, um, her, her book Remaking uh, Black Power, um, along with this Archiving wild Black article – those are, you know, that article is so, I, I would say it's one of the most important pieces of writing in the entirety of this year. Um, and I think it's going to stand at the test of time because when you connect it to John O. Franklin, when you connect it to um, Arturo um, Schomburg and you think about, these folks are writing books. They're accumulating this, this um, all of these uh, uh, manuscripts, all of these different, you know, pieces of, of history, right? Within a time frame of Jim Crow, where black folks are still being lynched, right? Chopper is going down in the ni- what the nineteen twenties? Am I yeah, right? there nineteen
1: twenty nine to
0: thirty two? Yeah. So, so the late twenties going there are still black folks being lynched, right. right? And publicly, one of my second, you know, one of my other interviews was about you know black folks in Florida, in North Central Florida, being lynched during the World War Two era, right? Yeah. In the nineteen no, mean, forty Yeah,
1: and I think yeah to your point again, and I think that that's what it's very really interesting to me because I think one of the um, things that we've lost again is when we think about the prominent archival spaces, right so Howard right has the Moreland Spring Art Center, right those were collected like there's the, the reason that these spaces are named for these folks is that they had the money and they're also like being very intentional in in collecting right and it's the question of is it Accessible, like for who are you doing this? So anybody who goes to the Schomburg Center, for example, when you go to any archive, more often than not, you have to leave all of your belongings. You can take a pencil, maybe a laptop. That's it. It's very limited what you can do when you go to the the Schomburg. Center, yes, if you want, if you want to access, you know, any of the divisions, you you are asked to check your coat, check your stuff. They'll give you a plastic bag depending on where you want to go. There are lockers there. But if you go for any of the events at the Schomburg Center, and they have events almost six days out of the week, right? Free events for the community and the community, not meaning specifically just Harlem, but for throughout the New York City area, it is open to everybody. free events and their concerts and their film screenings and you know their book discussions, anything that their conferences that happen in that space, you can just walk in. You don't have to check anything right? And so for folks who don't think of it necessarily as an archive, don't know of it as an archive, but they do know of it as, oh yeah, I saw Harry Belafonte come, you know, or I saw Sonia Sanchez talk, or I saw, they just walk in. And so that, you know, outreach to a community and being open to the community, there's a, you know, it was deliberate that he, he was working in 135th Street branch, right? That was, I wanted to say that, and also as you were talking, I was thinking about How social media and Twitter in particular has has democratized, again, in terms of access of knowledge, right? Has been really critical in that throughout the world, right? Not just here in the United States. And so, you know, has the hashtags of you know black Twitter historians, right? The hashtags of museums are not neutral, right? There are people who are questioning, you know, and, and that's not to say this isn't new. And I'm not gonna pretend that it is, right? The same way that like collecting in this country has started within the Black uh, communities started, you know, probably in the 18th century, if not earlier, right? These questions, you know, you know, there was a prominent moment. I'm so sorry for the background noise. I am in New York City. I... <laughs> um, but, you know, when we look at, you know, folks who are named curators in museums, right? Folks who are, na- who are heading up universities, who are heading up um any of these institutions that guide our lives and we don't really think about it that's when you know that that's when we see like what's you know the wizard behind the curtain it's, right like what's hey, happening, it's real
0: it's real you know and so
1: these are ongoing questions that are that that are going that are taking place and i think that one of what i hope for what one of the things that this book did for me was again i'm trained as a literature scholar a literary critic and so because of that quite frankly, you know, in during the composition of this book, you know, they're disciplinary boundaries, right? So I'm not a historian. I'm not trained as a historian. I always teach literature within the context of history. And so, but I was faced with, okay, I can write a book solely on his writings and that's it. Or I can actually write the book that was begging to be written. And that was, we got to fill in these links. And so, you know, everything can be an archive. What you're doing, this is an archive. An individual's writings are their archive. The collection of books, I imagine the the, the collection of books that you currently have being the host of this program, that's an archive, right? Like, all of them. (laughs) So it's what, you know, all of this is what we're, you know, we're all doing it without even thinking about it. You know, it doesn't have to be, it doesn't have to hit the front pages, right? It doesn't have to be a conversation about how much money the folks spend, you know, to buy, you know, 30 pages of something that were previously unknown, right? We all have them, we're all cured. You know, I think that at this moment in an Instagram reality, I think a lot of people more and Facebook reality, they talk about the curation of lives, right, the images that we choose to put up, the parts of ourselves that we choose to share right? We're all doing it at any given moment, if you are engaged in social media in that way. And so, you know, these are ongoing conversations that cross disciplines. My hope, one of the my, one of the things that I learned from the writing of this book, right, was, you know, what the the issues being talked about in museum studies and library studies is not that different from African American studies or Latino studies, or, you know, Asian American studies, you know, questions of representation and questions of power, and how we're assembling that knowledge, and for whom we are- who are we serving in the accumulation of that knowledge
0: and and that's exactly why for us um as scholars generally um we have to continuously you know ask these particular questions we gotta you know we gotta keep you know thinking about the archive and 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 who the archive displaces and mm-hmm. and, and how we you know go about um you know trying to get through that right as someone who writes on uh black uh women's intellectual history uh broadly within the 19th century and the uh late uh 18th well that's a direct issue in, within the field um and it has been for a while um and you know recovering the the voices of, of black women and so for me when mm-hmm. i think about that i also think about like the work of like madissa fuentes down at Rutgers and uh, and others where, you know, they're thinking about the archive and, 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 and thinking about also terms like agency and, and what does that mean within the context of bondage or within the context of segregation, Jim Crow, you know, lynch violence, right? You know, what does, you know, what are the limitations of agency? And also what does that mean within the overall context of subjugation and, and power struggles? Um, and so for me, Though all of those questions are central to why uh, uh, Schomburg is, is such an important figure to to, to all of us, um, and and why we are very glad to have had you um, on the program today, um, and so within the last couple of minutes we have you. Um, well, I won't ask you the the normal final question, considering uh, I already know what you're, what you're going to say. So, so, you know, so, so, you. <laughs> Oh yeah, I, don't worry. Okay. I I I ain't no elephant, but I, <laughs> I remember. Just I got I'm sorry. I got a pretty good memory. I I I you know I, I try I try. Um, <laughs> but um, can you tell us a bit about um going forward with this book um after having it published? You know, what are what's the what's the part about about Schomberg's legacy that you believe is the most important for those who may not know as much about him? But will after reading this book, but um they'll probably have listened to this right beforehand. So what is what's what would you say is the single most valuable um in lieu of the of the usual question about next work, what do you think is <laughs> what do you think is the most important uh piece of information that you want, you know, the, uh nascent observers of, of Schaumburg and his legacy to to learn about him?
1: So I'm gonna I'm 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 gonna take advantage of the next few minutes um and say two things kind of one of so i don't think you can do singular with him first of all i think the i think the mul- i think the multiplicity is key to understanding him and the reason you know uh, this is my second uh, book that i've written it's my fourth book that i have ushered into the world because i two edited collections prior to this and all of my when I construct my books, I do so with the idea of multiple audiences coming in. And so for example, for those folks who don't know about Puerto Rican history or Cuban history, right? Or or Cuban Puerto Rican history in New York City in the late 19th century, there's a chapter for you. If you want to know a little bit about, like, you know, um, the Harlem Renaissance, there's a chapter. For, if you want to know about Masons, if you want to know about, like, the role of Masons in the construction of Black masculinity, right, there's something there for you. If you want to know about Afro-Latinidad and how that's, you know, coming to play and the idea that being Black and being Latino is not a contradiction, I want to repeat that because folks have issues with that still. But being Black and being Latino is not a contradiction. You can be both at the same time as folks have been for millennia. This is not a new identity. It's just, we're talking about it more. Um, there's something there for you. If we want to talk about the archive, right? And not only, um, you know, yes, you cited Marisa Fuentes, right? I talk about Michelle Wolf Trujillo here and how, his, you know, his fundamental work of like silencing the past and the, you know, the, the construction, what the silences and the erasures that come with Right, the construction of an archive, but I also put them in conversation with Ada Ferrer, who, you know, has just, you know, has written a book about Cuba and Haiti in the, in the age of revolution, right? And how that work has spawned, um, a consideration of the relationship of the, the role of Haiti in, uh, in, in the Haitian revolution, um, for black Populations again throughout the hemisphere, right? So if you haven't seen, digital Aponte, um, Aponte was a free black man who in 1812 was accused of leading uh, an insurrection in Cuba and was put to death. And in, during his trial, they found a book of paintings that he had that he had done, and there was references to Toussaint Louverture and you know references to the Haitian Revolution, and so. Digital Aponte is an online website, an online resource, and there's also Visual Aponte, which is an art exhibit that was first shown in Little Miami, I'm sorry, in Little Haiti in Miami, came up to New York, is now going down to North Carolina, is going to Duke, a gallery at Duke University. And so, you know, conversations about, um, again, diasporic Black peoples, right? All of that. with regards to So in relation, Schaumburg is, has his hands in many pots. And... I think for me, it's also the idea of just being open, right? Again, when we're being trained um, within the academy, there's this, the idea of we have to exist in binaries. And for so many of us, we don't, right? So we just don't, we don't exist in those spaces. So there's not a question of either staying in the academy or going out, right? We look at questions of accessibility, looking at our communities, serving our communities, right? We come with a different motivation into this space. And so this book, he demonstrates through his life how one can navigate those different spaces. And a final legacy for me personally is this book has more firmly allowed me to argue for the importance of um, a more grounded uh, a, a Afro-Latinx scholarship. And so what this allowed, what this book allowed me, what the success of this book has allowed me to do is allowed me to go to my, to SUNY Press, which has published three of my four books and, and say, and argue for the creation of a book series that is focusing on Afro-Latinidad. And so, so as I bring a series editor of that, so Afro-Latinx Futures is inviting manuscripts across the humanities and across the social sciences, using Afro-Latinidad, um, using, centering Blackness uh, throughout the, the hemisphere uh, as an operating um, thought uh, and, and looking for manuscripts that are not only doing recovery work, yes, because God knows we have to do recovery work, but also theorizing then what does that mean for us now and what will it mean for us tomorrow? And so that's an important legacy for me personally, but also for you know the scholarship that is happening at this moment, because oftentimes, if you do Blackness in Latin America, still um, across disciplines, there's still um, resistance. There's this idea of, well, this isn't a valid line of inquiry. Why are you doing this? Nobody has published on this. And so there are two other lines. The um, Palgrave has a series. Um, Cambridge University Press has a series. And so SUNY Press now has Afro Latinx Futures series. And so that's that's what Schaumburg has done for me,
0: and that and that's tremendous. And um, hey, you know, you're you have an open invite as as you always do um, <laughs> to come back uh, and to to speak to uh, either myself or someone else within within the network to be able to uh, get some of your. Uh, new projects <laughs> <laughs> uh, onto your uh, onto the program. So I see, I, I see what you did there, and I appreciate. It. I don't know if you did it on purpose, but I'll take it as if you did. Um, and so um, thank you so much again uh for for coming onto the program. It's been exceptional um to have another uh experience getting to talk to you for, for over an hour. And, um, and, and it's, it's a, it's a pleasure and an honor uh, to be able to talk to you today. And um, it's not, uh, it's not goodbye, but it's see you later.
1: <laughs> Thank you, Adam, for, for, again, for this conversation.
0: All righty, And once again, folks, um, come back to the new books in African-American studies channel, where we not only talk about scholarship, but we also get to laugh about it as well. <laughs> even within very serious contexts, Because sometimes you just got to live through life and just <laughs> be able to laugh, be able to stop from crying. <laughs> and so with that being said, until next time, folks, I am your host, Adam Xavier McNeil, s- student of history and in the Department of History at the University of hey. Delaware and a new contributor to <laughs> Black Perspectives. A part of, yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, within the birthday week, within the birthday week, Uh, through the very important and emerging um, group over at the African American Intellectual History Society. And until next time, folks, stay good and stay well.